The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, and my newest book is called Gut Feelings. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, we actually have brand new telehealth patient options now open, and lots of free resources there for you as well. It's all at drwillcole.com. That's dr. W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, we're giving away free signed books every single month, no matter when you listen to this episode. Here's what you need to do for a chance to win. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. You can even, you can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you can take a screenshot of that Apple Podcast review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every single month, my team and I will be going through the messages on Instagram, as well as the Apple Podcast reviews themselves, and randomly picking winners from both places every single month. And then I'll reach out to you. I'll ask which book you want me to sign, and then we'll send it out to you. All right, good luck. Let's get to today's guest. His name is Dr. Ralph Esposito. Dr. Esposito is a naturopathic physician focused on optimizing health span and lifespan through preventative and lifestyle modalities. He takes a personalized approach to preventative medicine by using evidence-lead tactics to teach people how to perform and feel their best while reducing the risk for chronic disease. He holds a clinical master's in acupuncture and Chinese medicine and is a certified functional medicine doctor and Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner like myself. He completed his training as a medical intern at NYU Urology and recently completed his tenure with Dr. Peter Atia, a medical practice focused on longevity. Outside of his practice, Dr. Esposito is active in the health and education sectors where he is an adjunct professor at New York University in the Nutrition and Dietetics Program and serves as Chief Science and Nutrition Officer at AG1. All right, let's get right to it. This is Dr. Ralph Esposito's Art of Being Well. My friend, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to, to geek out with you today, my friend. Oh, there's going to be a lot of fun. People are going to learn so much. I'm, I want to start the conversation with, I'm always curious as clinicians that's, that, that are passionate about health and wellness, nutrition. How did you get into this? I mean, because it's a path that not all physicians, people that are interested in, in healthcare get into. What's your story? Yeah, it, I'll give you the five minute or two minute spiel on a lifetime. Uh, essentially, since the age of seven, when I was seven, my father, uh, very young at about 47, had two heart attacks. So, which is quite rare. And at that time, you know, as a seven-year-old kid, you're petrified thinking of you losing your dad maybe twice. 
And I remember seeing my dad hooked up to all these different machines, bypass surgeries, open heart surgery. And from about seven onward, I always really relied on conventional medicine to save his life, right? That is what conventional medicine is incredibly good at. If you have a heart attack, they're there to save your life. And I'm so grateful for the work that they, they bring and all these doctors that, that have saved my dad's life. And as I was growing older, I started to realize things started uh, glitching with him, I guess, in a, in, a, in a way. He went from heart disease to peripheral artery disease. Then he had emphysema because he was a smoker. Then he went to, uh, he had leukemia. So a chronic type of leukemia. Then he had chronic bowel issues where the peripheral artery disease was actually impacting his bowel. Colonic ischemia is what they diagnosed him with. Then he started getting sarcopenia, so muscle wasting disease. And eventually my father passed away with Alzheimer's, so cognitive decline. So if you look at the top 10 killers, top five killers in America, my father had 80 to 100% of them, right? Depending on, on what point you're looking at it. So I started to realize, hey, there might be another way to solve this problem and conventional medicine have extended my father's life. And unfortunately he passed away, but they didn't do a lot to make him live better. And then he, you know, he suffered from depression. So, so the whole body was impacted like we see in, in, in many of our patients where the mind, body, gut connection really all is integrated. And then I started to realize that there's another world out there. And when I was at NYU in my undergrad, I kept on telling my advisors, I want to go become a medical doctor and then heal people with nutrition. And every person I spoke to said, you have no idea how this works, do you? That does not exist. So I looked at other different fields and they were like, well, maybe you want to become a DO. I looked into that and not a lot of nutrition training there. Uh, and then I found naturopathic medicine. And then I incorporated naturopathic medicine with uh, traditional Chinese medicine. So as an acupuncturist and Chinese medical practitioner, went on to become a functional medicine practitioner, did the whole certification, did a medical internship at NYU, uh, continuing on to my career, uh, working with the top experts or, you know, the most renowned doctors in the world, Peter Atia, I worked with him for about five years and really dedicated my life to preventative medicine and longevity. And uh, now I'm really dedicated to helping as many people as possible, which is a big, big task, as you know, and we try to impact as many people as we can. Uh, and we just have to do it one step at a time. So we mm -hmm. brings us here. Wow. Profound. And I'm so sorry you went through that with your dad. I know. I mean, just going through one of those health issues can be life altering. I can't imagine the journey that you had to walk through with him. You touched on something that I, I, I talk about it from time to time. And I still feel like people don't, not enough people know about it. And you were looking for what's the path? Like what's the path to sort of marry getting people actually healthy, but also being trained in medicine and healthcare. Can you talk, like, what are the statistics at this point of nutrition training, generally speaking? I know there's variables and every training can be different, but a general conventionally trained medical doctor, what the amount of training they're getting more or less when it comes to health and nutrition and I guess foods implication and nutrients implication to health? It's quite minimal and institutions are now starting to incorporate a little bit more of it, but on average, anywhere from an hour to 10 hours in their total training, some institutions might be more or less. Uh, one of my best friends is uh, finished up his schooling, just finished up, finished up his residency and his nutrition training were lunch and learns. So, uh, <laughs> so wow. uh, minimal at best. And isn't it crazy when you think about this, the vast majority of health problems that are being seen in the, you know, from when talking about PCP and the chronic health problems, or even mental health cares, the, the implication there, autoimmunity to even, you know, many emergency care situations other than injuries, these chronic health care issues that are, are plaguing our nation are largely lifestyle driven. Nobody's going to really deny that at least plays a role. People can debate on how much of a role that plays. I know that's a big question, but I mean, do you have any thoughts on why that is? We see some change, which we're, I'm, I'm super excited about, but why is it taking this long when you see uh, of the influence that nutrition can have on, on longevity and on improving, reversing, optimizing, supporting these chronic health problems? I wish I had the single answer. 
I do think it's an evolution. I think we've advanced. I think we've got, come a very far away from where we were 50, 60, 70 years ago. I think part of the role is that we're not looking at nutrition or lifestyle medicine within the same lens of, of how we, or we're looking at it within the same lens of how we look at conventional medicine. And there's a completely different paradigm that needs to be applied when we're looking at this new age of medicine or how we look at the new evolution of medicine. Traditionally, medicine and all sciences uh, apply the reductionistic model, right? You take a, you take two groups, you change one group, you give one group a placebo, and then you find out, did this intervention actually cause a change? That makes a lot of sense, but that is not how lifestyle, that is not how nutrition, that is not how exercise works in reality. So we're trying to fit something into a model that just is not going to work. It's like plugging in your diesel car into the wall and thinking it's going to work. Not not possible, not going to work. You need a plug for a Tesla and you need gas for your car, right? And that's kind of how we are trying to fit this or or force feed it. And for some things it works. For a few things it does work. And we're we're making advances, but the whole model, the reductionistic model is not applicable to the way that we look at nutrition now. I think we need to look at it through a more synergistic model, which is uh, part of the type of work that we do and that we're starting to see people evolve into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And like, like when we both got into what we do, there was no functional medicine center at the Cleveland Clinic. You know, there, there's huge things that have changed since you and I have been in this space, which is promising. Like I am hopeful and optimistic about it. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that you, you feel the same. Absolutely. Seeing other institutions. I mean, when I first started my medical internship at NYU, it was me and one other doctor, right? It was tiny. And now we're starting to see it get integrated into other aspects, other institutions, uh, which is very promising. And in fact, they're starting to incorporate it more into uh, medical training. And you see a lot more medical doctors, nurses, RDs, uh, nurse practitioners at these IFM or these A4M conferences. And, yeah. and you start seeing and creating this community. And then you start realizing, ah, okay, we're all on the same page here. We want to help a million people and let's figure out how we can do it together. Yeah, I, 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 I see the same and I feel the same. I, I want to really pick your brain about something that we get asked a lot uh, with Nutella Health patients. They have questions on it. I, I get this question a lot on social media. And it's the whole concept of supplementation and nutrients from supplements to fill in the gaps to, you know, things that maybe they heard on a podcast or read a book or article about. Can you start with on, on the label of supplementations, they'll see things like RDA mention or DRI. And what's the history behind that? And really educate us, I guess, on what that means and what people should look out for there. The DRI is a uh, essentially... Uh, broken down into multiple different areas. There's the EAR, the RDA, the AI, and the UL. So the the RDA is what people are most familiar with. And then there's a percent daily value, which is what people see on the label. So when you look on the label and it says 100% daily value, that means you're meeting 100% of the daily value of what is determined by the Food and Nutrition Board. Then there's the adequate intake where we don't have enough information. So we're going to assume this is adequate enough Then we have upper limits, which is uh, essentially where we see potential for uh, toxicity, although arguable because we don't really have a lot of data on that. And a lot of this stuff can be interpreted in multiple different ways. So essentially, when we look at the DRI, we're setting up the minimum requirement that is needed to prevent a deficiency or inadequacy that is very far and very different from what people are trying to achieve for ideal or optimal health. And it was developed in the 1940s around World War II, where we started to realize a lot of people weren't getting some of their nutrients. We've made some progress and we've actually come a very far way of figuring out how do we get the DRIs to a standard that is more aligned with the new scientific method Although we have come far, I don't think we've come far enough. Some of these DRIs, percent daily values, RDAs, are just not up to speed with the science. Uh, if you look at a lot of the data and just general NHANES data, which is a very large survey of you know thousands of Americans to figure out what is the average intake of various nutrients for, for Americans, 
And that's the average, right? So that's the the mean, the mean or the or the middle point of most nutrients. And if you look at things like vitamin D, magnesium, vitamin E, calcium, a bunch of other ones, about 40 to 50% Americans are not meeting the average. Now, what's really important to understand is that the RDA or the percent daily value that's on your label should be two standard deviations above that. So the, the RDA is intended to get make sure everybody has enough nutrient status or the RDA is designed to uh, make sure 97.5% of the U.S. population meets the requirement for inadequacy or insufficiency. Mm-hmm. So if most people are not hitting 50% of that, then imagine how many people are missing up to 97% of what they, or 97% of the population. So we are very far off on, on many, many nutrients. And we can certainly go into details on how it was developed and it and varies per, per nutrient. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that. How was it developed? Like most common nutrients, I guess, that you see deficiencies in. And then what's the gap between what most people are getting? And, and I know bioavailability plays a massive role in this as well. So yeah, I think for the people listening, they want to know, okay, what, maybe they don't have labs, maybe they don't know exactly, but what's the most common that we see clinically in functional medicine that you, that you think people should know about? I think magnesium is the most obvious. I think we both could probably agree one of the most important minerals that most people are missing. But I'll take one that's even more simple than that is vitamin C. So the RDA for vitamin C is 75 uh, milligrams a day for uh, the average woman and 90 milligrams a day for the average man. That data was developed based on (laughs) on seven individuals that they studied, I think in the 70s, where they found out they took their white blood cells and they said, okay, uh, let's see where we, how much vitamin C do these people need to take in to saturate their white blood cells and also so that they're not excreting or urinating out vitamin C. And that's how they came to 75 milligrams. But that's not even the uh, amount that they decided. So they then found out, okay, we found out the exact amount of vitamin C that's necessary to get this saturation level, this normal level. How do we find out what is needed to meet 97.5% of the population? So they just decided, let's choose 10% more for one standard deviation and 20% more for two standard deviations. And that's how we got to 75 and 90 milligrams per day of vitamin C. On seven individuals, that was based on data that was on in vitro no human, uh, well, it was human data, but it was in vitro data. And look, we're doing the best that we can because it's very, very hard to decide or to study these nutrients. But that's how it came about. And even before that, it was based on how much vitamin C do you need to prevent scurvy, which is about 10 to 15 milligrams. Well, that's not enough. So certainly they came a far way to bring it up to 75 or 90 Again, it, it requires a new paradigm of how we're looking at nutrient uh, sufficiency and also optimization because different individuals need various different types of vitamin C. And in fact, just prime example, the uh, uh, many committees acknowledge that people who smoke need more vitamin C. Why? Because they're under more oxidative stress. So I believe they increased it by 25 to 30 milligrams if you're a smoker. So we acknowledge that there are variabilities but we're not, and, and, and Will, you know this, we're not even considering how these nutrients work synergistically with other nutrients. Vitamin C with vitamin E, alpha lipoic acid, CoQ10, other citrus bioflavonoids, et cetera. So uh, yeah. that, that's oh. a good example. Fascinating. I mean, the history of it, I didn't know the history of that. That's a profound. I knew it was antiquated data. I knew it was based off of really, you said World War II's 1970s data, and it's just kind of stagnant and the progress, and you're doing a lot to change things. And we'll get to the, the paper and the research that you're doing. But what's a, I, I think people are going to eat this up. Vitamin C, what's another one that comes to mind that you're just like, all right, this is, we, ha- we have some work to do here in the uh, understanding of what's optimal. Vitamin D. You know, we recently made an update to the vitamin D uh, DRI 600 units, 600 international units per day is the average requirement. As you get older, it has gone up to 800 international units per day. The amount of data 
on vitamin D that has come out, not just in the past three to four years, right? Uh, given the pandemic and everything that we've learned for the past 15 to 20 years, the amount of data that we've found, uh, we have, that we've discovered on vitamin D, it, it amazes me that we're still settling with 600 IU. The other uh, consideration is that it depends on where you live. It depends on your age. It depends on how much sunlight you're getting. It depends on what mm-hmm. you're eating. Uh, you know, are you getting vitamin D with vitamin K2? I have never had a patient in my career that I've gotten their vitamin D levels to optimal levels with 600 or 800 IUs of vitamin D. I mean, I don't know if you have. Never, never. So we need to reevaluate that data as well because vitamin D is a vitamin, sure, but it also is a pre-hormone and it's a metabolic signal in the body that we are not paying enough attention to. And I think every nutrient is the way that our body communicates uh, with the environment and with our evolution. Uh, Nutrients are our body's language. And we need to apply that type of approach as we look at all these nutrients together. Vitamin D, another great example. Magnesium, huge. I mean, just basic essential necessity for ATP production. So ATP is how we uh, actually make energy in the body at a very, very molecular level. In order to liberate that energy, magnesium is absolutely necessary. So if 40 to 50% of the US population is not hitting the average amount of magnesium, not even considering bioavailability, then how are we going to say that we're uh, eating enough or getting enough, even with uh, a perfect diet? And and we could talk about, you know, what is the perfect diet, but I I digress. (laughs) Another thing that I I, I wanna pick, to get your thoughts on is homocysteine levels. Let's just say uh, homocysteine inflammation levels, which I see a subset of people that it's not even, it's probably a bigger subset than we even understand. Uh, people that have methylation impairments, they're somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum. We can kind of talk about that too. But B vitamins roles in that role in that. Can you talk a little bit about B vitamins, their role in many different pathways in the body, but one of them is doing having to do with homocysteine recycling? Absolutely. So I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the MTHFR. Uh, single nucleotide polymorphism, so a, a mutation, uh, estimated at about 10 to 15% of the population has some uh, decreased function in this enzyme. And this enzyme is essentially necessary for our recycling, we call the methionine cycle or the B12 folate uh, cycle. And it's essentially how we take B vitamins, so uh, folic acid or folate, vitamin B12, Another nutrient, which is not a B vitamin called uh, TMG, trimethylglycine, right? All of these things, uh, B6, let's not forget about that guy, riboflavin, all of these things, all B vitamins are absolutely necessary for this cycle to work properly. Now, if there's some type of glitch or kink in that pathway, things bottle up. So making sure that those enzymes are working appropriately are absolutely necessary. So vitamin B2 is going to be necessary for MTHFR or uh, B12 recycling. Well, why does that matter for homocysteine? Because homocysteine is made from methionine, which is an amino acid. We all eat it. We all consume it, whether you're plant-based, carnivore, paleo, keto, all of the above, you're getting some amount of methionine. So homocysteine, methionine is then converted to uh, S-adenosyl homocysteine, and then homocysteine is a byproduct of this whole cycle. And in order to get rid of it, you need vitamin B6 through an enzyme called CBS to eliminate it. Now, if, if all of these nutrients are not working together, regardless of whether you have a mutation or not, let's say MTHFR, you're yeah. 100% functioning, which is, I don't know if I've ever seen that, but let's assume. If you have a insufficiency in these nutrients, we're not talking about you know a percent daily value. If your body is depleted of these through chronic hypercortisolemia, so high stress levels, if you drink a lot, if you exercise a lot, your body needs to use these nutrients for other things. Now you're pulling from those processes to try to get rid of homocysteine. Something has to give. So that's where these B vitamins are absolutely necessary. Now we have backup systems. We have backup mechanisms that can help compensate if we're deficient in these B vitamins. That's why I mentioned TMG. Another one of my favorites, I'm not sure if you use this, is NAC, which is another uh, nutrient to help with homocysteine reduction. 
But if you do not get those foundational B vitamins, do not yeah. expect your body to function optimally just from a basic biochemistry level. Yeah. Uh, creatine. I, I, creatine. I, I could, yeah. Creatine is another one. Yeah. So I, I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, you're right. It, many people have these methylation gene variants, whether it's MTHFR or vitamin D polymorphisms or MTRR, like B12 uh, Im impacting, but whether that's there or not, just from a lifestyle standpoint, I think these key basic things that many people just know they're not optimizing. They're not sleeping well. They're stressed at the, in their life environmental toxins, all of these things is what you're saying, right? They're, they're depleting your body's methyl donors. So we need to basically overcompensate in supporting this important, these pathways. But can we, I guess, define that for people like methylation? Why should they care about methylation? Why is that important for the average human? It's the way that we add a molecule to our DNA and other parts of the body to allow it to communicate properly. So there's acetylation, which is a larger molecule that changes the way that certain genes and proteins work. And then there's methylation, which does another different, uh, has another different function on how these various genes and molecules and proteins are working. If you are not methylating properly, right, that, and that's not just with uh, MTHFR or homocysteine, but it's an essential function of almost every single cell in the body. Magnesium, vitamin B6, right? For uh, if your uh, COMT is methyl methyl transferase, right? So it's another enzyme that's responsible for methylation, which is necessary for neurotransmitter production, right? So for brain uh, neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters in the gut, neurotransmitters in the adrenal glands, right? I probably could go through every single bodily system and figure out a way of where methylation is playing a role. So it's an absolute essential function in the body. And if it does not work well, are you going to have a huge, you know, disease like a scurvy or beriberi or rickets? No, but it will not function to the, the way that the body wants. And then that over time, it's like an erosion over the body. And that's, and I look at, at chronic disease as erosion, right? It's the big waves hitting the ocean side, hitting the cliff side year after year after year. If you don't, address that in the beginning and set up your protective barriers, you start turning into sand. And that's what happens in the body until we get these things under control. Well said. I mean, I mean, the, the statistics speak on that. I love that analogy of, of erosion and that water over time. What is that doing with the sea, with the seaside or the whatever, you know, land you're talking about with erosion? It's about four to 10 years prior to somebody being diagnosed with something that things were brewing on that erosion spectrum, right? On that, that spectrum, that continuum between health and health problems. So it's for people to know that. So you touched on the interconnected, or I guess the synergistic cofactor uh, importance of this. You, you, and you threw out a few really important ones. Why is that important? I guess the synergy between nutrients, so people can understand that. One that comes to mind is iron. Uh, we see a lot of iron deficiency or maybe not even full-blown anemia, but low ferritin or stored iron, sluggish iron. And it's impacting a lot of things in their body like energy and hair and um, brain fog, hormone health. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe using iron as an example, or if you have a better one, um, just so people can understand why it's not just about one single nutrient, it's about the the overlap or the communication or the assistance in bioavailability, these other nutrients can help the most common nutrient deficiencies. Yeah, so first we're just gonna start from how do you get iron into the body? So there's heme and non-heme iron. So non-heme iron is what we find in uh, plant-based foods, mostly plant-based foods. Then we have heme iron, which are found in animal-based foods. Now, heme iron is more bioavailable. Your body tends to absorb that and take that in quickly. Non-heme iron is less bioavailable. So, uh, you know, this whole historical, I mean, maybe by coincidence, you know, the Popeye having, you know, spinach with your meat, right? The reason why is because the spinach is high in iron, but it also has, it has high levels of vitamin C in there to help enhance some of the vitamin C absorption of that non-heme iron. And then that vitamin C also helps enhance some of the heme iron that's found in a lot of our other foods. So just from a basic foundation of what happens when it hits your gut, 
you're going to need these two nutrients for that absorption to occur optimally. Now we have to consider, okay, so once we absorb that iron, assuming that we absorb it, and there's a huge microbiome impact there, how do we get it to the body and help it get it transported throughout the entire bodily systems? Well, you need to go through the gut. Let's assume that's okay. <laughs> and you and I know, arguably, that's not always okay for many Probably people. Probably not okay, but let's go with that assumption that it's okay. If you're a unicorn out there, that <laughs> let's Let's great. assume everything is functioning perfectly. You have to take that iron and then transport it throughout the body through ferritin and transferritin. And then it gets to your red blood, or gets to your liver, uh, which then helps make red blood cells, which are uh, going to essentially incorporate that iron and help it transport throughout the body so you can carry oxygen throughout the whole body, right? The amount of nutrients involved in that process, I cannot count. You know, we used to have a game in, in med school where it was, you know, the first person who can't count a function of the liver and a nutrient uh, combination there, you know, has to go run a lap or something along those lines because it's it's an immense list of here's all the things that the liver does and all the nutrients that are involved in that. So vitamin C, a very uh, major nutrient there, but all the, also the other amino acids that are necessary to make these proteins in order to transport iron throughout the body. I mean, it, the list is, is you know, uh, immense. Right. And then you, you see the typical person out there that, and I've seen so many of the years, they're taking that iron supplement. They're even doing iron infusions and they'll see these like waves of high iron or like inching towards optimal, but it's short lived. Right. And, and I think what you're talking about here is that the synergistic effect of what are other nutrient deficiencies that are at play here that's inhibiting the sustainability of iron being optimal. And that's just one example. There's so many other examples. Something that I, I would love to get your thoughts on is copper, because I know copper can play a role with iron, but copper is one of those under-talked about, I think, nutrients. And why is that important? Why should people be mindful of copper intake in their life? I think we forget sometimes about the basic biochemistry that we learn in school as clinicians. And copper is part of our antioxidant system. And it's actually part of an enzyme called superoxide dismutase. So in order for us, and let me break this down even more simply, uh, SOD or superoxide dismutase is involved and uh, it's an antioxidant. So the body has uh, three major antioxidants that it makes in and of itself outside of what you eat. That's glutathione, SOD, and catalase. And we need copper for one of those SOD enzymes. So just from a basic foundational level for our white blood cells, our immune system to function properly, it needs zinc and it needs copper. Now, if we have too much zinc, it depletes us of copper. and Copper is one nutrient that many people, if you're not having a very well-balanced diet from plants or animal sources, it's very hard to get copper into your diet. So it plays a significant role in the immune system, in the antioxidant system. And that's not even to consider how we transport copper and iron throughout the body. There's an enzyme called ceruloplasmin, excuse me, a protein called ceruloplasmin, which you can check to see if somebody has adequate levels of, of copper or function functional metric of copper in the body. So all of these things are interconnected. And if you dismiss one or just forget about one, or even forget that copper is necessary for these things, uh, you're, you're going to miss out on a whole biological, biochemical pathway. Mm hmm. Got it. So what do you say to the, per the person that says, you know, why do we have to supplement with these things? I guess would be the first question. Can't we just get it through food? They hear people like you and me talking about food as medicine. And why isn't that enough? Why would you or I or somebody within functional medicine recommend supplementation? What's 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 at play here? What are we faced with as a society? Yeah, I, I won't use myself as an example, but to make the bigger point. Uh, most Americans and most people uh, in general are not getting sufficient amount of various nutrients. And we know this from NHANES data, right? So we already just spoke about the EAR, how most people are not hitting that for many nutrients. But let's take myself, for example, and I'm, I'm sure you're a good eater. I mean, nutrition is basically my life. So I consider myself a very good eater. And I use an app called Chronometer, which is quite accurate 
and uh, you know, many of my students are starting to use it in some of their courses as well. The, uh, my students who are dietitians to help understand: Are we getting enough nutrients in a you know for a study or certain population? And I tracked my nutrient intake, my food, pretty much to the T. I, I weighed it uh, every day, every meal. I did it for a full week, and. I was eating huge salads every single day. I was getting enough protein. I was taking, I was eating all of my fruits and vegetables, and I still was not able to hit about eight different micronutrients. So vitamin C, I wasn't hitting. Uh, magnesium definitely was not hitting that. Iron uh, was borderline for me. So even just somebody who's really focused on trying to eat the perfect diet is very, very hard to do. Now, Bigger issue here is that over the past 50 years, and we have data on this, one study from the UK, which actually was published in 2022, and then another one, I believe it was published in the mid-2000s, I think 2014, that found that uh, various nutrients in our crops have reduced by up to 50%. So that means the, the broccoli or the orange or the carrot that you're eating now compared to the one that you're mom or grandma ate has about 50% less uh, amounts of various nutrients. So, and that's only just nutrients that they're measuring, right? These are micronutrients. We're not even talking about the phytonutrients in there, which I would argue we need a DRI or an RDA for phytonutrients and phytochemicals and polyphenols. So uh, even if you were to eat the perfect diet and assuming that data is saying the broccoli that you ate has 12 milligrams of vitamin C, that doesn't necessarily mean that the broccoli that I ate from my you know, grocery store has that amount in there. We're just assuming that that's the case. And even then, if it's perfect, we're still not hitting that amount. So that's why we need to create this foundational nutrition support to make sure people are, are filling in the gaps, are achieving that nutrient status when they may not be able to get exactly the perfect diet. You know, another one, uh, omega-3s, uh, EPA, DHA. I eat fish, but I was not able to get to two grams of EPA and DHA a day, it's quite difficult. So that's where other nutrient supplementation really comes into play. And it's, in my my opinion, is absolutely necessary. Yeah. Well, like you said, you're someone that lives and breathes this. So if you're having trouble hitting this mark, can you imagine the average person out there? So you mentioned the crops and the fruits, vegetables of even the animals that are eating the plant food are, are could be inhibiting, you know, the, there, there are deficiencies compared to just a few generations ago. And, and then on top of that, something you touched on earlier is digestion and absorption and gut health. And I can't see, help but see the connection between the soil microbiome, our own gut microbiome, and we basically need to overcompensate. Is that a fair way of saying it? We need to overcompensate for this, this deficiency that we have on multiple fronts. I would absolutely agree. And that's not even considering the variability that's changed in our microbiome over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, even if you've never taken an antibiotic in your life, right? As a kid, I was on antibiotics a lot. I had strep a ton, uh, grew up with IBS my whole life. So I know how important uh, the gut microbiome is. But actually a recent study that I'm in the middle of reading right now, have you ever heard of the Hadza uh, trial? Yes, in Tanzania. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So they actually just sequenced their microbiome and they found out that there are, there are species or, or uh certain microbiota, uh, microbiota, archaea or bacteria that they found that they sequenced in their microbiome that do not exist in the Western civilization. So we're thinking about, oh my God, is there water on Mars and can we find bacteria on Mars? Guys, we need to look, <laughs> we need to look here. Like what is happening on our earth with all these other populations that we have not even considered addressing? That, it, it was mind boggling to me. And I'm thinking to myself, what could we do with that information? I, I usually tell my patients, look, we know more about the Milky Way than we do about the microbiome. And we have a lot to learn, but I'm telling you right now, it is important and we're going to do whatever we can to optimize that. And that's how we create this uh, symbiotic relationship with our nutrients, with our gut uh, and with our body. Yeah, profound. I know uh, you recently were a part of a peer-reviewed scientific paper in a scientific journal, I think Nutrients, right? About this concept of foundational nutrition. Can you talk about what, it's exciting stuff. Like stuff like this doesn't get talked about enough, doesn't get enough attention in the scientific community. So, and you're doing a lot to change that. What, what's the paper about? What did you find? 
Yeah, we're pushing the limits on how we think about nutrition. It's a it's a call to action on we need to reevaluate how we look at nutrition. And our suggestion, our proposal is that we need to look at things through this foundational nutritional perspective. It's one of the first, I believe it's the first paper that's been published in a peer-reviewed journal that focuses on foundational nutrition, the foundations of, of health, essentially. And when you look at the foundations uh, of health or foundational nutrition, we break it up into three different parts. There's gut health, which we're starting to realize we cannot ignore. There's whole foods, polyphenols, uh, phytonutrients, right, curcumin, OPCs, etc. Uh, sulforaphane, right? And then there's uh, functional nutrients uh, or, you know, we were going back and forth, what do we call these things? But these are uh, essentially foundational nutrients that we have not established DRIs for, RDAs for, that are very, very important. CoQ10, uh, creatine, alpha lipoic acid, right? All of these things that we know are absolutely important and many people are deficient in. I mean, I check CoQ10 levels on many patients, especially on any patient that's on a statin drug, yeah. right? And all of these things together, these three pillars is the foundation of how the, there's a synergy and a bioavailability of all these things together that establish a foundation of health. And if we do not address, address one of these pillars, something will crumble or there will be a crippling effect. So if you do not address the gut, then you're even if you eat all the best nutrients, you're really not going to get the best bang for your buck. Or if you have a great gut, but you're not eating whole foods, right? You're just basically eating processed foods. You're still not going to get going to get the best bang for your buck. So putting all these three things together, which is similar to the approach that we look at with functional medicine or naturopathic medicine, is going to be a way that we propose, uh, you know different institutions start considering nutrition. And it doesn't have to be so complicated. It's just this foundational approach that if we check off these three to four things a day, we're going to make people live better. And, and we know that people are not getting these things. Yeah. Live better, live longer. And you think of all the people that we just sell, we get, we're not giving our bodies the raw materials it needs to thrive. And so many people settle for, well, this is just me, you know, it's just my lot in life. I have this issue or they, you know, I, like we always say at the clinic here, just because something's common doesn't necessarily make it normal. And accelerated aging, feeling fatigued, having whatever, brain fog, anxiety, slow metabolism, certainly is ubiquitous. But what we're talking about here, guys, is just, every day just feeling your best because this is what your body runs on. I know you mentioned about phytonutrients and we should have a daily value. Like we should be looking at standardizing what is optimal here. Can you define like what are phytonutrients specifically? Like what are the most, like most important ones people should look out for? Phytonutrients are essentially nutrients from plants. And I would even argue that phytonutrients can also be broken down into prebiotics as well. And that's a very fascinating area. Uh, things like green tea and cocoa and pomegranate and cranberry, they all have phytonutrients that feed our microbiome. But in the most simplistic terms, phytonutrients are nutrients from plants. Uh, I have a ton of favorite phytonutrients or, you know, polyphenols. There's no, whichever one you want to count, flavonoids, EGCG, the polyphenol content in uh, in cocoa is in, there's incredible amounts of data there. Even when you combine them with other vitamins and minerals, these are things that we have not even considered to be essential or necessary because they don't really present with a uh, frank deficiency. So if we're not addressing these things now, imagine all the other things that that are going to have an impact on. Um, I, I can't forget, you know, sulforaphane, which is a sulfur containing uh, phytonutrient from broccoli or or garlic, right? Or onions, curcumin, everybody loves curcumin, right? So these are phytonutrients that people can get in their diet if they are eating that in their diet. I don't know how many people are having that much turmeric a day to get enough curcumin. <laughs> it's it's pretty tough. Yeah. Or sulforaphane. I mean, they may be having some sulfur-rich vegetables, like you're saying, but a lot of the things you just mentioned are needed for the production of glutathione, which you mentioned earlier, like the master antioxidant, which I see such a, it's profoundly important for people to just feel their feel their best. And you can your body's endogenously making that when you're getting these nutrients in your body. 
something, you know, I've taken for years and I'm such a fan of your work here as the chief science and nutrition officer at AG1. Can you talk about that? Something that I take every day in between consulting patients online and why I, I'm such an advocate for it to fill in the gaps that we're talking about. Well, number one, thank you so much. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of effort that goes into making this foundation nutrition product. Uh, we're really pushing the limits on uh, how we want to get this foundation nutrition to every single person uh, in the world, because we do truly believe that it can help many, many people. And when it comes to creating the product, quality is number one. So that's why we do additional testing. We have NS we're NSF uh, for sports certified. So that just make, make sure that where there's no banned substances in there. So athletes can take it comfortably knowing this is not going to interfere with any of their performance or their testing. Uh, then we go, you know, GMP, which is the way that it's made, TGA certification at the manufacturers. But even more so, we test for over 900 or maybe 950 contaminants in the product. So we're talking about heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, not in there, glyphosate metabolites, not in there, right? All of these things require a lot of work. And then going ahead of that and making sure we're getting bioavailable nutrients. So when you look at things like magnesium, magnesium glycinate, not magnesium oxide, uh, folate as methylated folate, B12 as methylated B12, zinc as zinc citrate, uh, not to include all of the prebiotics that, that go in there, inulin, I would even argue cocoa, green tea, spirulina, uh, apple powder, all these things are these very high quality nutrients that are very hard to get not just to source them, but even to get from your diet and also to put them in a formula that tastes pretty good. So uh, that, that's one thing that I've always uh, harped on with many of my patients. Look, I can tell you what works. I could tell you what the best diet is, but it is not going to work if you don't do it. So at the way that I explain that, there's efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy, does it work? Effectiveness, can you do it? So AG1 is effective. We can do it every day and it's efficacious because it has a lot of these nutrients that the body needs at that foundational level. Yeah. And I, like, we, kept, we talked about the, the nutrient depletion in the soil, gut health absorption. I mean, I just see it as like, all right, I am filling in the gaps for just living in our modern times. It's just the way that it is. And obviously we have to do things to change that. I think a massive advocate for global political environmental change when it comes to regenerative farming. And it's really, uh, be, there's a lot of innovations going on, but I'm just one person. You know, I, my job is to help people get better. But even as individuals, we need to say, okay, yes, we could be a part of a larger change on a macro level, but on a micro level, we need to, in the meantime, be filling in the gaps here. And that's why AG1 is like a non-negotiable for me every day. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the methylated forms, which we talked about methylation earlier. We talk about bioavailability. Why is that important here? Because people may be taking a folic acid supplement or specific, uh, specific compounds that aren't the most bioavailable. Real quick, what, why is that important? I would say from a, a basic perspective is that most people are not getting these bioactive forms in their daily diet. If you are vegan, you're definitely not getting methylated B12. Plants can't methylate B12. That, and that's why many vegans or vegetarians are B12 deficient. So if you are not getting these bioavailable forms, then your likelihood of not being able to utilize them goes down. Not even considering any other, you know, single nucleotide polymorphisms or mutations that the body might have. You know, for another example, we were talking about vitamin C earlier, and we all know the story, you know, scurvy was discovered because these vitamin, vitamin C deficiency from sailors, and then once they started having limes, they, their scurvy went away. But not every single one of them got scurvy. Why is that? So because some people had different genetic makeups that allowed them to be more resistant to scurvy or vitamin C deficiency. Now, do I know what every single person's genetic makeup is? No. And in fact, we're still trying to discover and figure that out. But I do know that this is a foundational approach that most people are going to need. And people need methylated B12. They need methylated folate. Uh, they're gonna. They're going to need these active forms. Otherwise, we're just taking a risk. And, and why take a risk with something that's so simple to solve? Mm -hmm. So, what? Let's break down an AG one ritual routine, like just something simple all of us can do. 
I mean, I'm doing it literally with, between appointments. It's very simple. Tell me if I'm doing it right. It's since I'm talking to the man right here, that I just put a scoop in water. I know people could put it in smoothies and stuff. And I do tell telehealth patients if they want to do that, they can. But to me, it tastes good. I just get an immersion blender, water by itself. I just have it straight up. A am I doing it the most effective way uh, as far as the research is concerned? Yeah, we want to make sure that it's cold uh, okay. because there are probiotics in there. So we want, and obviously heat can disrupt uh, nutrient stability and especially probiotics. So number one, we want to make sure it's cold. Uh, I assume you're putting it in cold water. Yeah, it's just straight up cold water. And so no like soup, hot soup, AG1 soups that we should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to add it to your- I haven't tried that, but you know. I we know don't want to add it to your broccoli cheddar soup. <laughs> uh, Cold water, one scoop, shake it up. I mean, we actually timed it on our team and on average, it's about 60 seconds. So one scoop in cold water, I add an ice cube to mine, shake it up and it takes 30 seconds and, and eight ounces of water and you're done. And that is probably as easy as it's going to get. Mm -hmm. I, I do it in between consulting patients, like I said, but on the weekends, I have it as my ritual before my morning workout it, it, it's profound what it can do because it's, you're getting these cofactors, what it can do to even just stamina throughout the day, even if you're not working out, just like focus and energy and sustained energy. Do you get that report a lot from people? The one thing that I notice from a lot of people is they're saying, you know, my gut just feels better, right? Just overall better. I feel, uh, you know, one patient said to me, he goes, I don't know what it is, but I just feel that my gut is calm. I was like, oh, okay, great. Like if that's what, it, if how you feel and that, and that tells me that there's this gut brain connection, right? Cause that's a, yeah. a mood, but it's also a, a physical feeling. The other thing that we're noticing is that people are just feeling like they have more energy throughout the afternoon. So less of that afternoon uh, fatigue. And that has a lot to do with the adaptogens in there that really help with that sustained energy throughout mm -hmm. the day and the stress resilience. You know, things like rhodiola, ashwagandha, uh, licorice, eleuthero all of those things. Yeah. I mean, the way that I describe AG1 and is for people to get it is, is a multivitamin, multimineral, a green superfood, probiotic, adaptogen blend, functional uh, mushroom blend, all in one. It, it's crazy what you guys have done in, in getting all of that in a serving. I mean, I don't know how you do it. And I, what I know, also know that you have done is multiple iterations. Can you talk about why that's important? You're constantly optimizing based on the latest research? Continuous improvement. It's it's one of our mottos. It's, I would say it's on our wall, but we're a remote company, but it's, it's plastered. <laughs> it would be on the wall. It would be on the wall. It's on my <laughs> post-it note, right on my computer. It's continuous <laughs> improvement. And that's how I look at life. And that's how I look at my patients, right? Health is not linear. Uh, it takes two points to make a line. I'm gonna take you from here to there and it will be bumpy right? And that's the same thing with AG1. Did we get it perfect on try, uh, first try? No. So there's been 52 iterations. We've made many, many modifications. Uh, you know, the NSF certification was a big win for us to make sure we're getting that quality in there. You know, as new research came out on methylated B vitamins, went right in. As there was new research on adaptogens, they went right in. Uh, and then there's some things that, you know, that we decided to take out and modify because we didn't realize, we realized that not everybody would need these things, right? Like high amounts of fiber. Everybody needs fiber, but maybe we don't want to combine that in a, uh, in a foundational nutrition drink because it could impact nutrient absorption. Depending on your gut, not everybody can really tolerate high amounts yeah. of flax or chia or psyllium. So we've, we've spent a lot of time to, you know, perfect the, the, the puzzle. That is a, I didn't know that was one of the changes, like the decreasing of some of the fiber. Cause I do see that with some, certainly with G, a lot of GI uh, issues that I see clinically, fiber is a balancing act, right? And it doesn't, it's not foundational. And that's what you're trying to educate. What is everybody need? And you've really striked a balance um, with what you have right now. I'm super impressed. As you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. At the end of every episode, we have your art of being well. This is Dr. Ralph Esposito's Art of Being Well. First question is, what's the worst tasting healthy food that you still eat, but it tastes freaking disgusting, but you still do it because of the, the nutrient density? I'm not a fan of sauerkraut. I just, I 
cannot, I grew up in an Italian family, right? I mean, fermented foods are not huge in the Italian culture. We fermented like peppers and uh, maybe fermented olives, but really they weren't fermented, they were pickled. Yeah, but sauerkraut, right. I know how good it is for me and I force feed it because a lot of the great <laughs> research around fermented foods, you know, maybe easier on a hot dog, but yeah. I just, <laughs> a little bit of sauerkraut and I do like two forks a day and that's yeah. what I do to make myself better. I love that. Well, we have to figure out, HE1 has to figure out how do we get sauerkraut in that scoop? All right, that, I'll bring you in it. house. I'll, I'll get some of your, <laughs> some of your expertise. <laughs> Figure it out. What What's the worst, if there is one, what's the worst tasting healthy food that you know it has so much amazing research around the, the uh, nutritional benefits of it, but it's just too disgusting for you to have on, at least on a consistent basis? Boy, I would say goji berries. Now, a, a lot of people love goji berries. And actually in traditional Chinese medicine, it is used quite a bit because of its, its tonic ability and its ability to support uh, various uh, systems in the body as a, as a blood builder, et cetera. But it, they're just so bitter and pungent and astringent that they kind of just make your teeth feel like they're sticking to the top of your uh, lips or your palate. But it is they are incredibly helpful, not easy to, to make taste good. That's why a lot of them are dried. Uh, but as a raw goji berry, it is quite the palate adjuster. Yeah. Yeah. I've never actually had the raw. I've had the dried. I'm, I'm not a fan of those either. I, I, I agree with you there. I could, I could leave it for sure. What's your dream vacation? Anything in the world? Some remote mountain area in Europe. And I, th I think that's, you know, there was one vacation that we had, my wife and I in Portugal and it was incredible. I literally walked around this farm, picked trees, uh, figs off the trees, picked olives off of the trees. In the afternoon, we had this beautiful green wine. Uh, they, we had a nice little garden that had all these different plants, hibiscus, right? I made uh, a hibiscus tea, literally from the plant. Just living off the land and being able to just be in the sunlight in the mountains and in Europe kind of helps. Uh, that would be... I'm, I'm thinking about it right now. I mean, I might book a ticket tonight. <laughs> if you had to eat one food for the rest of your life, regardless of health benefits, purely on taste alone, what would that food be for you? I love eggplant. It is, it, it has a nice savory mm -hmm. taste. It's uh, highly nutritious. I, I would say eggplant or mushrooms. The umami okay. from the mushrooms are like, I can eat that every single day. You give me a portobello burger, burger, I can do that every single day. I love that. What's the latest non-food, non-supplement, like a wellness tool, like a biohack, maybe some technology, maybe something low cost, what it, like whatever it is. Like what's something that you've been doing lately that you really have been getting a lot of benefits from? It's, I wouldn't say that there's something I've been doing lately. I've been doing it for several years now is CGM. So it really does help me keep, uh, keep myself accountable. And it keeps a lot of my patients accountable as well because we don't realize sometimes that, you know, okay, I'm going to have an apple as a snack and the apple's the size of a watermelon or, you know, a small cantaloupe. And you're like, wow, this really had a significant impact on my blood sugar. And now I feel pretty crappy a few hours later because it was just a, a sugar bomb. And I'm not saying apples are bad. It's just my body specifically does not react well to apples. Or the other example would be sweet potatoes. I've, for some reason, even though their glycemic index, index is not that high, I just can't tolerate them. So it's been an incredible tool for me to help me sustain my energy levels and really identify ways that I can optimize my blood sugar regulation. Because we do have data showing that high levels of blood sugar over long periods of time uh, what would I would say a higher area under the curve of blood sugar over time is going to be problematic and other ways that we can kind of get those down. You know, apple cider vinegar is a staple of mine before my dinner meals to make sure that my blood sugar doesn't stay elevated overnight. I would have known that if I didn't have a CGM. So it's, it's mm -hmm. an incredible tool. Yeah. We had Dr. Casey Means at Levels on the podcast. So people go back to listen, go back and listen to the episode all about CGM and, and what, what we're talking about here. What's the, and this is a completely relative question, I know, but what's the weirdest 
wellness thing that you've done? Like how how weird have you gone down the wellnessy train? Well, as a naturopathic physician, I, I pretty much <laughs> have to do everything that I recommend my patients. Uh, I would say there's two things. Have you, uh, many of your listeners are probably familiar with gua sha, yeah. right? Uh, there, there's a cosmetic benefit to gua sha. And then there's a traditional Chinese medical perspective of gua sha. And it is basically beat the crap out of your muscle with a tool. And there are gua sha tools. I use a, uh, a spoon. And that's what I was trained with. So I essentially take a spoon similar that you would get as a, maybe an Asian restaurant that you have your miso soup with. You just grip it in a unique, strong grip with your thumb and your forefinger, and you just scrape a muscle. And I've essentially bruised myself intentionally uh, for healing purposes, but it was a pain that felt so good. Uh but a little bit weird once you start seeing huge amounts of bruises along your along your shin or your thigh. Uh, I I recommend people see a Chinese medical practitioner. Do not do this at home unless you are a Chinese medical practitioner, and then <laughs> you probably know what I'm talking about. That's amazing. Yeah, it, same with uh, cupping too. It can look strange, right? But that's the goal in traditional Chinese medicine is to increase healing and circulation in certain areas, right? That's right. Yeah. And it's a tradition or it's a, a medicine that's been around for thousands of years. Uh, again, another reason why I think we need to start taking advice or keeping attention, paying attention to the things that just are tried and true. You know, I know they say the plural of antidote is not data, uh, but there's something to say when something has been around for thousands of years, we should pay a little bit more attention to it. Mm -hmm. Well said. What's your favorite restaurant in the world. And when you're there, what do you order? My favorite restaurant is a place in Maine called Hidden Pond. And you drive through this down long road and you have no idea where you're going. You literally think you're just driving in a random forest. And then there's this beautiful hotel and restaurant on the right-hand side you pull in and they make incredible farm to table or local food, I should say. Uh, I think best in any meal that I've had in New York or LA, probably period. It's, it's incredible food. What, where is it at in Maine? Oh, it's, uh, it's next to Kenny Bunkport. It's okay. about 20 minutes from Kenny Bunkport. Really, really nice area. We can go to the Bush compound and then head out over to <laughs> uh, hang out with Jenna for a little bit. Do you go to Starbucks? And if you're, if you go to Starbucks, what is your order? I keep it very simple. It's <laughs> a, uh, a double espresso. Simple, I come, man. I, I mean, I would, it would not be fair. I'm, uh, my parents are first generation or my parents are off the boat Italians. I'm first generation. If my mom saw me drinking, uh, we call it in Italian, we say l'acqua sport, which basically means Dirty water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so right. Americano, that's where I got it in its name, right? It's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So espresso, I have to stay true to my roots. I love that. What Do you know what Enneagram you are, the personality uh, study? I have not done it. I've heard you talk about it and I probably should do it, but I, I Man, do not know. You, you have to tell me afterwards. I'll let everybody know afterwards. It's all right. Absolutely, right after this. <laughs> um, what's a book? It could be fiction, nonfiction, but what's a book that you've read in the past year that really was like just massively influential, I guess, in the way you see the world? I have to give credit to Peter. Uh, Outlive is an incredible book. Uh, I trained with Peter for about five years. He's taught me a tremendous amount. As he was writing it, I saw bits and pieces of it. And then I saw it come together. And the the final chapter, really on the mental health perspective and the mind-body connection, blew me away. And I was just like, wow, this is something that will be a timeless book. I recommend everybody go read it. It's incredibly informative. Uh, if you have to read one thing that will be, you know, tried and true for today and probably for the next several decades, that is the book to read. So, so it would be Peter Atia Outlive. Yeah. I haven't read it yet. Shamefully, shamefully I haven't, but I have to, I've heard great things for sure. My friend, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. They, they heard heard me talk about AG1 and how I use it. Where can people go? I think we have a special link. 
I, I actually have, I'll read this right now. AG1 is giving everybody that's listening to this right now a free one-year supply of vitamin D3. It's a vitamin D3 K2, right? That's right. That, so you get a combination, which are two really important fat-soluble vitamins. We talk about bioavailability here. They're both important. You get that, a year supply of that, and also five free travel packs. The, the AG1 travel packs are a non-negotiable in my carry-on. When I'm like, I'm flying with my son to Chicago tomorrow, I, I, however many days I'm gone will be how many AG1 travel packs are in my back. You get uh, five free travel packs with your first purchase. The link you have to go to everybody is drinkag1.com slash Will Cole. That's D-R-I-N-K-A-G and then the number one dot com slash Will Cole. Dr. Esposito, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, my friend. Happy to be here. Thanks so much, my friend. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.